Polly. My story starts in uh, Aurora, Illinois. Some of you may recognize as the garden spot of the Midwest. Uh, it uh, it was the uh, hub of the uh, universe in my uh, perception, and of course you know who was at the center of the hub. Aurora is uh, about 40 miles from Chicago. It is so small that the Masons and the Knights of Columbus know each other's secret. Uh, they're thinking of uh, merging and calling themselves the Masonites. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had a relatively non-traumatic uh, childhood. Uh, my mother did not bronze my baby shoes when I was still in them or anything like that. And I went on to a Catholic parochial a grade school where I learned that uh, your body was the temple of the Holy Ghost and uh, stay away from girls with black patent leather shoes because they reflect up. I uh, was an altar boy, and uh, I must admit uh, that I did not uh, drink any of the altar wine. I think that was primarily uh, because uh, the Monsignor never uh, left any to be drunk. And uh, it was a happy time for me. I, I think back often to those times of, uh, of grade school and uh, all the fun we had, and I, I, I tracked back there from time to time and just recently physically went back and even roamed a couple of the classrooms because uh, it was a fun time. And I remember it, you know, it was really neat and exciting and so forth. And But uh, I was a little unsure of myself, and there was starting uh, to be uh, some drinking in my family and uh, lots of fighting in my family, and I soon became the great pacifier. Uh, trying to uh, keep the balance uh, of things, uh, and uh, but grade school was really neat. Some of this uh, family disruption was uh, temporarily offset by my trek through uh, military high school, and that's when I started this climb uphill. Uh, I, I soon began achieving, and uh, I was the cadet lieutenant colonel, number two in command, and I soloed an airplane at age 17 and got real good grades and uh, uh, was uh, still... Uh, you know, trekking on up, uh, graduated in the top 10% of my class, and, uh, you know, it was kind of neat and exciting, but things at home weren't quite good again, and, and now I had changed roles from the great pacifier to the great pretender, uh, because what was going on uh, on the uh, inside wasn't matching what was on the outside. Uh, I recall the morning I left to go to uh, college, uh, Dad and Mom had had another fight, and it was a very traumatic uh, kind of uh, departure scene and so forth and so on, but it was a sigh of relief, too, to kind of get away from the situation and uh, trek off to, uh, to the big school. Uh, I went to Notre Dame. Some of you may recognize that's a small school in northern Indiana that used to play football. Uh, I, uh, I got there on a football scholarship, by the way. I was a uh, yard marker. It was a little, uh, little embarrassing every Saturday to walk back to your room with your roommate, you know, 10 yards behind you. But uh, again, I was achieving and doing real well. Uh, I wanted to be, to be a pilot. I uh, was in the Air Force ROTC and uh, got the Outstanding Cadet Award, and now I was Cadet Colonel, and, and everything was fine. I, but <clears throat> Notre Dame was where uh, I got into some regular drinking. Um, that's where I really discovered alcohol. Um, just dabbled with it a little bit in high school, but uh, I, I found out later that was a very appropriate place to learn about alcohol because I came to learn later on that alcoholism was a disease of Irish Catholics that got uh, cured in Protestant basements. And uh, I learned later on also it wasn't uh, confined just to the Irish or Catholics and it never got cured. Uh, there was a bar I loved and everybody, several of my buddies loved also in uh, in downtown South Bend called Sweeney's. Sweeney's served green beer, uh, not just on St. Patrick's Day, but 
all, all, every day, all day, every year. And uh, it was just, I think that's where I probably made the decision to eventually enter urology because I was fascinated how the green beer would turn, <clears throat> turn your urine to a chartreuse color. Uh, and I spent a lot of time with Sweeney's, but uh, this, despite all that uh, and all those achievements, uh, I graduated uh, cum laude, and now uh, I was in the top 20% of my class. Interesting kind of trend that was uh, starting, which I didn't recognize. I um, changed my majors. I decided to, to drop that pilot thing and uh, and uh, go into medicine. I didn't do that until my senior year, so I had to stay on into a fifth year, and I had all my courses completed uh, by the first semester, and so I just kind of had to hang around to avoid the draft for the second semester. And already my judgment was beginning to get impaired because I, I chose to take a course called quantitative analysis. Uh, <laughs> Not that I had a problem with grandiosity or anything or a distortion of reality, but I thought that would be kind of interesting to take. Uh, and uh, low, and I really didn't even need it uh, credit-wise. Uh, and uh, I had uh, been accepted uh, into medical school. And uh, damn if I didn't fail that course. And my medical school application was canceled. And uh, that was a very devastating blow. The reason I failed that course, of, of course, was... Uh, in fact, I was doing a lot of drinking. Of course, I didn't see that at the time. I mean, I worked hard, and I was taking all these freshman courses as a senior, and I couldn't go out and have fun with my regular senior buddies. And uh, so, you know, I deserved this good time. Well, it ended up in disaster, and it cost me an extra year at Loyola in Chicago in grad school uh, uh, in anatomy. I remember um, the morning I left to go into uh, matriculate to that grad school, having two real cold uh, Miller beers in the basement at home. This was at age 22 now to uh, to get me through that little hurl. We'd had a big party or something the night before folks' anniversary. They weren't fighting as much anymore, and they decided, uh, you know, it would be mutual coexistence and stay together for the kids. Uh, we just had this super surprise 25th anniversary for them, and everybody celebrated, and I had one hell of a hangover. And anyway, we went in, and I did well that year again, and eventually got uh, into medical school. Um, and uh, that was at Georgetown, and I was really excited about that. And uh, uh, I thank God for med school because it put a little dent in my drinking. Uh, you know, you all know that you study a lot in med school, and not that I gave it up uh, entirely. Please don't uh, be misled. But uh, at least the frequency and the amounts uh, were cut down, somewhat diminished, and I uh, I uh, got to be elected uh, class president, and that was exciting. Uh, I beat one of the local uh, guys who had went to undergrad at Georgetown, and boy, that was neat, and that was a real uh, ego inflator. And uh, then uh, my friend that I, uh, I met uh, and became fairly close to from uh, New Jersey uh, fixed me up with this blind date who had a very crazy last name, and I had a kind of funny first name. For a guy, at least, at least I always thought so, and uh, and uh, he he wanted me to do him a big favor and go out with this gal, and, I, and you know how they say, boy, she's got a really neat personality, you know. Uh, he didn't say that. I said, well, that was good. He said, he said, you really like her. She's got the one of the really neatest laughs you'll ever hear, and I didn't really quite know what to make of that. And, uh, some of you who know Mary Lou, uh, you hear her from time to time this morning, uh, understand what that means. But anyway, we went out uh, uh, on a blind date, and it was love at first sight, and I fell in love and uh, courted her, and uh, boy, that was really that was really neat. And uh, we got pretty serious, and uh, 
I asked her to be engaged, to be engaged, which was in vogue in those days. And uh, with my little Notre Dame miniature, you know, with a nice green stone and everything. And uh, she rejected that idea. Um, and uh, and she rejected me. And that was devastating. And in retrospect now, I, I used alcohol for the very first time, I think, well, not really, aside from hangover stuff, but, uh, you know, to medicate emotions. I was, it was, it was disaster. It was real despair. I recall sequestering myself in an apartment over in Arlington Towers, uh, with a couple fists of gin, which I did not like. Never drank gin before. Hated the taste of it. In the case of Seven Up, and proceeded to get literally stoned. Uh, I was occupying probably the biggest pity pot there ever was. And I had an acute case of poor little old meatitis. And it was just terrible. Uh, but uh, we got through that, and I came to my senses, and through a series of uh, clever manipulations, uh, she finally came to her senses. <laughs> and uh, we, we got together, and uh, everything was fine, and we got married, and, and uh, but that was in between junior and senior year. And again, I had a coveted uh, uh, internship that I got, and... Uh, it was uh, it was exciting. Uh, however, now I graduated in the top 40 percent. Uh, notice this decline: 10, 20, 40. You know, it wasn't a, you know a uh, what you might call a gradual tapering off. It was a uh, it was an exponential decline. I had to give up the class presidency uh, in the second year um, because it was interfering with my grades. And I was flunking out of bacteriology, microbiology, they call it then. Um, gee, that was, that was terrible. Talk about ego deflation. I was really riding uh, on the crest. Um, but I had to give that up. Of course, I blame my failure in this course on this class presidency and uh, the tremendous demands of that job and uh, uh, all of the organizational effort entailed in that uh, particular position and the leadership responsibilities and all this crazy kind of stuff. And it all boiled down to spending just too much time drinking Miller beer is why I was flunking the course. And so the, the professor was kind enough to let me have... Uh, uh, a, a retake of, of the of the final exam, and if I passed it, fine. If I didn't, goodbye med school. So it was on the line. Uh, I remember my father coming to town to visit. I didn't, of course, uh, impart this information to the family back home, and uh, we had a big party at the house. And one of my good buddies just happened to say something like, "Jesus, too bad Lynn had to give up the presidency." And uh, my father and I had a rather long conversation uh, that evening. I recall. Uh, but anyway, past exam and on to junior year and on to, to graduate from med school. And again, like I say, not uh, uh, real high, but still in the top 40% and on to internship. And thank God for internship because in, it was 36 on and 12 off. And that, uh, uh, that, that really put a dent in the drinking. Uh, again, and not to total exclusion, but... Uh, I, I hadn't been for internship in, uh, in med school. I think I'd have gone downhill and then uh, in a much more rapid deterioration. But uh, it was on to uh, uh, internship was completed, and, and again, it was a very successful, probably one of my biggest self-esteem building years. Uh, I, I really performed. I really achieved a lot of pats on the back, uh, and uh, we still argue who was the best intern, and it came out to be a tie, I think, and... Uh, um, it was just exciting, and I got a coveted residency back at Georgetown in urology, and man, it was neat, and I was riding the crest again and opened the mailbox one day, 
And there was a letter from uh, uh, Uncle Sam saying, greetings, um, you will report too. And off I went. Um, I had been in uh, Army uh, Military High School, Air Force ROTC at Notre Dame. Uh, I got uh, assigned to the Navy and uh, wound up spending all my time with the Marine Corps. I, just, I missed the public health somewhere along the line. But uh, drafted into the Navy. Now, about this time, my father had the uh, first of a series of cardiovascular accidents. And, uh, of course, the big design always was for uh, me uh, to take over one of his or all of his business empires. He had five businesses going at that time. And uh, you can imagine how he felt when I told him I wanted to change my majors in college from economics to pre-med. Uh, you know, I thought that would be... Uh, total revolution, and uh, he's accepted that quite uh, quite well. Of course, there was a lot of my son, the doctoritis, in that, but uh, and now he had the stroke, and I had finished, and and I said, well, I have got to go home, okay, and run this empire while he, uh, you know, can you imagine this now, a med school graduate going home to run this business empire, and I called him and asked him if he needed any help, and he said, no, he really didn't, and things would be just fine, and he had plenty of lieutenants, and I didn't need to come home, and I knew right then and there he wasn't in his right mind. Uh, and so I proceeded to go home, and I needed six months to do all this kind of stuff, So, and I, that old flying stuff was still in there, and I decided, well, if I apply for the flight surgeon school down in Pensacola, I'll get to six months, because the first available class is not till January, and so that was exciting, and uh, so I went home and I did general practice for a while and uh, helped run this little empire, and thank God it was only six months or he'd have gone down the tubes in bankruptcy, I'm sure, but uh, uh, off to uh, Pensacola. Now, Pensacola uh, was a high point in, uh, in my drinking career. All of a sudden, uh, there was a transition from a $3,000 a year internship, okay, to uh, being in Pensacola as a Navy lieutenant. Uh, with doctor's pay, and I'm going to be in flight surgeon now, and flight pay, and beer was only 25 cents at the old club, and everything was cheap, and babysitters were a dime a dozen, and I want to tell you, we had, uh, it was instant Rockefeller. We had more money than you can believe, I mean, compared to that $3,000 a year the year before when we were uh, doing peanut butter and jelly. And, uh, man, I tell you, uh, uh, and every night after class, there was the, the happy hour at the Oak Club. And I, 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 I consumed amounts of alcohol that, that I have no idea, uh, volume-wise, but I do know it was on a daily, daily basis. And there were many a Friday night that I did not come home until uh, 10 o'clock to bring my wife out to dinner, and she would tell some really kind of embarrassing stories how the babysitter, you know, well, he must have had a problem at the hospital, or, you know, there's some disaster on the base. There's probably been a nuclear accident of some kind or whatever. And uh, I'd roll in 9, 10 o'clock and take her out. And it's just terrible. Interestingly enough, people talk about blackouts. Um, we went back to Pensacola two years ago. And uh, my recollection of the geography of the base was totally distorted. Uh, I only remembered two places, the Oak Club, of course, and that particular stool at that particular bar was still there. Uh, they'd taken my name off of it. And where the aircraft carrier was docked. Okay, you can hardly miss an aircraft carrier. I don't care how much you drink. But uh, 
I had buildings in the wrong places and pools behind buildings, uh, different ones and where they've blown, and a library and a base hospital and everything else was screwed up and I couldn't even find my way from the base to downtown Pensacola. You can't get lost in Pensacola. I mean, it was a real gray out. Must have been huge volumes of, of, uh, of alcohol. It was terrible. But again, I was still going uphill and it was exciting because, uh, oh, I got this award and that award and, I still think I even have, uh, the record still may hold. I got, uh, you know, as you're a flight surgeon, you get the solo, this little single engine trainer aircraft, the T-34. And uh, I got the highest grade they ever had there at that time. I don't know if it still holds the record. Of course, I didn't tell them that I had soloed 13 years before that. And they still don't know that. Uh, I, got, I got to go back and make amends to the Admiral, I think. Let's uh, set that record straight. But... Uh, it was uphill, but uh, then we got assigned to the Marine Corps and uh, came out here to uh, uh, Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, which is up the road here. Uh, now, if you're with the Marines, you got to have the right stuff. All right? you got to be one of the rough, tough, hard to bluff uh, types. And, uh, and uh, of course, you know, I wanted to fit in. I always wanted to fit in. I always had a problem with that, fitting in, uh, except when I was drinking. That in more. That's great. And um, back to the old club. Uh, we're all waiting to go over to Vietnam and medicating all of this anxiety. I was with a lot of alcohol. And uh, I, I remember uh, also using it medicinally because we would moonlight at one of the hospitals up in uh, in Orange County. And uh, by 4 or 5 o'clock, if I was on duty that night at the local hospital, I had to stop and have a couple beers get through the night. You know, I see this now through, the, through that wonderful instrument called a retrospectoscope, but uh, I didn't see it then. But my wife recalls several times of weaving down the Santa Ana Freeway, which is not a healthy thing to do here in California. The Santa Ana Freeway can be dangerous to your health, uh, especially if you're drinking. But then we went off to uh, Vietnam. Um, and I was where the action was, in the old club. We had um, we had two flight surgeon casualties. A case of beer fell on one, the other one died laughing. But uh, anyway, I was performing again, and uh, the star was uh, starting to shine brighter. And and uh, the wing uh, medical officer made me uh, the senior medical officer of the base down at Chulai. So I was, you know, ranked right underneath him, this big four striper. And I had a lot to say about what went on and. And I was doing what I did. Uh, but boy, did we drink over there. Oh, Lord, I mean, unreal. We made several laundry trips to uh, the Philippines, you know, to do our laundry because they didn't have any wash machines over there. And the first thing on the checkoff list, of course, was was uh, bringing back the booze. Uh, because from time to time, it would, uh, it would be in scarce demand. Uh, I developed a, one of my first resentments. Um, over in Vietnam against the Air Force. Uh, here we were in Da Nang before I went to Chu Lai, these two parallel 10,000 foot runways and the Marines were on the side and the Air Force was on that side. And I mean, we would have trouble. Sometimes we couldn't get beer. Uh, it got so bad. I should have known something was wrong because when you drink that Korean beer and every once in a while we got Carling's Black Label, which they make with water from the Sea Caucus River. Uh, you could go over on the Air Force side and you could have your choice of Miller, Bud, or Schlitz or anything. Sometimes we couldn't get any. And so we'd go over there, you know, allegedly to acquire some penicillin and other sundries. Uh, 
and make uh, some more of those laundry type trips and bring back beer. It was just, uh, but, oh, God, terrible, terrible type drinking. Now, I was a dedicated flight surgeon. And uh, I, I, I looked after my pilots with great vigor. When pilots were not flying in Vietnam, they usually did one of two things. They either uh, went to the chapel and watched old movies, or they went to the O Club and drank. majority went to the O Club and drank. Being very dedicated, I was there at the O Club, too, watching after them. And this went on for a while. We had a very astute base commander. He called me and my buddy flight surgeon in one morning. And this other buddy flight surgeon, by the way, he's not on the program yet. Every year I come to this, I keep thinking that he'll be here this year. <laughs> he'll be here this year, but I haven't seen him yet. Uh, but he was always late anyway, so he, maybe he'll roll in Saturday. <laughs> and uh, base commander called us in one morning. He says, Doc, he says, what's that magic medicine you got back in the dispensary? I said, what are you talking about, Colonel? He says, I want to know what's the magic medicine you got back in the dispensary. I said, sir, I don't understand. He says, look, Doc, I've been watching you and Doc so-and-so here for about three months now. He says, you guys are the first ones in the old club every night. You're the last one to leave. You drink drink for drink with those guys, sometimes two for one, okay? And you and Doc here, they're all 10, 15 years younger than you, these pilots. You guys drink them under the table. Oh, I said, well, Colonel, I said, sir, you don't understand. There's no medicine involved in this. I said, that is what's commonly known as discipline. <laughs> He said, what? I said, sir, that's what now is discipline. I said, first of all, you've got to learn how to space your drinks, okay? Secondly, you can't drink on an empty stomach. Thirdly, you've got to stay away from those carbonated beverages because they make the stomach expand and the booze gets into the small intestine and the first part of the duodenum gets absorbed more rapidly. And I said, you can't do anything. There's certain breathing exercises, number four, you've got to do. I said, and if you will notice, Colonel, I don't sit there on the stool all night. I said, I get up. And when that happens, the fat falls in front of your stomach, the temperature goes up, the alcohol gets metabolized faster. And I went on and on and on, you know. And he, uh, you know, he believed me. <laughs> you know what else? I believed me. And that was kind of crazy. I didn't know about hollow legs and tolerance and central nervous system adaptation and those kinds of things. But anyway, we got through Vietnam and uh, it was back to, uh, back to residency. Now, I was wanted to be a... Uh, a surgeon, and uh, but I still had some one leg in medicine and one in surgery, and so I thought I'd choose urology because there was some kind of connection there, endocrine-wise and, and antibiotic-wise and whatever reasons there were. And, and so I went back to the residency in urology and again the climb uphill. And again, thank God for the residency because now it was every other night, every third night, whatever it was, uh, and so I cut down on the drinking. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was not not for long, however. Okay, it didn't take long. I was into the third uh, third uh, year of the residency and uh, uh, back into some you know pretty good drinking after hours. Um, and now I was uh, you know the the senior junior resident waiting for the chief's year, and I was pretty good again doing what I was doing, and the chief liked me and blah blah blah, and so. Uh, I, w I was great at delegating. I delegate to all the junior residents all this stuff to do. And, of course, naturally, you know who took credit for all the accomplishments. And I, get, I was so good, I get it all delegated by Saturday morning. And Saturday morning, um, uh, I was uh, on the way home by 10 o'clock. And there was this little bar on the way back from downtown Newark, New Jersey, to Maplewood. And I'd stop there, and I don't know how many beers I would have, uh, 5, 10, 15, who knows. Uh, and I'd roll in about noon. 
And Mary Lou take one look at me and she say, Boy, you look like you've had a child. I said, Honey, you wouldn't believe the week I have had. I said, Thank God they've got me as junior, senior resident there, or whatever I was. I said, Half of Newark, New Jersey would be dead if it weren't for me and my wonderful talents. She says, Yeah. She says, You really look tired. Would you like a beer? And I'd look at my watch and I'd say, Yeah, I suppose. And she'd give me one. And uh, this went on for a while. Until one Saturday morning, I uh, I rolled in around noon again, and I'd had the usual stop, and and uh, I took a look at her, and she she I knew something was wrong. You know, you walk in the kitchen, the, the air, the vibes, you know how it is. Um, something was wrong, and I took a look at her, and it looked like she'd been crying. And um, this was getting towards the end of my third year, and I thought to myself, something's wrong here. Uh, did I forget an anniversary or whatever? You know, no, then I clicked, and so I made the mistake of saying. Honey, what's wrong? Her reply was, nothing. Okay, now you know when they say nothing, uh, there's a, you're in for a World War III. And she proceeded to tell me that she had been to Al-Anon. <laughs> I love this group. You can identify with me, right? right? And I had never heard the word Al-Anon before. I swear to God, I, I said to her, I said, Honey, pray tell, what is Al-Anon? She says, That's a place you go if you got someone in your family has got a drinking problem. I swear to God. I started thinking, Geez, your dad doesn't drink that much. Your mother doesn't drink that much. She's got a crazy good now. But I said, Honey, who's got the drinking problem in your family? And she says, You do. I said, Wait a minute. I recoiled off of that one. And you have to understand... And I'm sure some of you do, and other wives are in the audience. When you're married to a physician, especially a physician who not only has alcoholism, but at the time close to terminal chauvinism, uh, you're just kind of supposed to be seen and not heard, you know. You're supposed to transition from the bedroom to the kitchen and back and forth and speak when spoken to, that kind of old uh, orientation. And, and uh, so she was not only a, a female, she was a lay person. And now, <laughs> now she is proceeding to tell me that she's learned in this Al-Anon thing, okay, whatever that was, some kind of cult that was brainwashing her, that I had a disease, okay? And she's telling me, the doctor, I got a disease, and I'm saying, oh, poor thing, good God in heaven. But I remember, she says, get up from the table and go look in the mirror. Your speech is slurred already. It's one o'clock in the afternoon. And she says, this has been going on. And I said... Well, uh, whatever rationalization I came up with, uh, you know, that I was going to be this chief resident soon and whatever else I said, and, you know, that didn't seem to carry any weight anymore. And uh, any, I'll tell you, that was a, that Al-Anon experience, uh, that was a real psychological dent for me. I, 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 went, I remember walking up the stairs out of that kitchen that morning because there was no point in discussing anything with this irrational being I, I, anymore. I realized that... Uh, I came to the conclusion that my uh, that my that I that I was not powerless over alcohol that only my wife had become unmanageable, and uh, I went upstairs. But I remember that um, well, maybe there is something to this. So I went on one of these self-imposed restrictions and so forth and so on, and it worked for a while. But then we had a, a series of three tragedies. First of all, there was a lot of tension in the air, as you can imagine at the time, and we had had two older children, and we were having trouble getting pregnant, and Mary Lou wanted a child very badly, and so did I, um, and uh, we had uh, 
couple older ones, you know, young, we had two already, but we wanted some more, and uh, she had a little trouble getting pregnant and so forth and so on, and anyway, we had these three tragedies, and the first one was uh, my favorite uncle, uh, he died, uh, he was my favorite, I think, because he was alcoholic, and I went home, and, and I looked at him in the casket, and I recognized his alcoholism, I certainly didn't recognize mine, he wasn't in the ground five minutes when we, I said, as we exited the cemetery, we ought to go over here to this little bar we uh, call the office uh, and uh, just have uh, a couple uh, on old Uncle Punk. That's what, he, that's what he'd like, which he would have liked. So we, went on, we just have two. We had 22. Uh, and then uh, uh, came back home or to New Jersey, and shortly uh, thereafter, we had this, uh, this baby. Uh, and uh, I was so excited, and uh, I came home, and around 7 o'clock in the morning, I called home to tell the folks the good news. We'd finally had the baby, and uh, my mother was crying hysterically on the other end of the phone. Uh, she had just woken up and found my father dead, and he was my buddy. And, uh, uh, oh, it was just, uh, it was terrible. It was just terrible. Uh, home for that funeral and back, and then three months later... Uh, the little baby that we just had died from a crib death. And so, I mean, that was uh, ample excuse to uh, to take advantage of uh, alcohol again. And, boy, I was off on the... And I took advantage of it. And, of course, who was going to say anything under those circumstances? Anybody would drink. So, um, finished the residency, uh, continuing to fall uphill. Uh, got the award from the from the students as being the best chief president there ever was. And when you get it from the students, that's kind of a coveted award. And uh, back to uh, my hometown of Aurora. And I was doing a lot of drinking uh, by this time uh, in my end of my chief year. Uh, and I had opportunity to do that because there were satellite facilities being opened up and being the best president they had. The chief chose me to go out and do all this, and I did, and organized and delegated and whatever else there was to do. And... Uh, so I'd be, I'd get prime operating time in the morning and I'd be done by two o'clock in the afternoon and I'd be sitting in some bar someplace making a list transposing what I didn't do yesterday onto tomorrow. Uh, I'd list upon list upon list. Um, and, uh, some things got done, enough got done anyway and, uh, went back to my hometown of Aurora, which I, I realized again in retrospect was a geographic cure because you see everyone knew our family in Aurora. It's a small town and my father was very famous and, uh, here was the son off the medical school to go and come home and hang out the shingle, and everybody knew me and the name and everything. And I figured, you know, in retrospect, I can't be out drinking in all the bars like I was doing in New Jersey where nobody knew me and uh, metropolitan New York. And so we went back to little old Royal Illinois and uh, set up practice with the senior urologist there as his partner. And um, the geographic cure worked uh, for about two weeks. And uh, then I went into Chicago on a very frequent basis where nobody knew me in there. Uh, Frequenting all the bars my father and I had the last 10 years, and uh, I kept waiting for him to walk in the door, and he never did, and I kept still occupying not a stool, but the same old pity pot that was getting larger and larger and larger, and more and more booze was going down, but still I was, I was doing well. I was, uh, I was uh, doing extremely well, but I was very concerned, you know, about being seen in the right place, with the right people, at the right time, getting your picture in the paper for uh, ostensibly very... Uh, you know, worthwhile causes like the United Way and everything, when in reality it was to enhance my own self-esteem because I didn't feel very good about myself by this time. 
And I was very, very super concerned with image. When Dr. Tursky talked about that yesterday, I'm sitting here in the front row going, yeah, man, that's me. How did he know? How did he know? How did he know? And everything he said uh, just clicked right in. Check, 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 check. Yes, 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 yes. And that was I. And it was terrible. I, I, I recall being so preoccupied with image. I, uh, I remember even as a urologist doing some uh, some uh, uh, psychotherapy of sorts on, on several of my patients about image. I recall one in particular was a gal that uh, my good buddy had dated in high school, and they were married. They got married in high school. Janice, and I, I hadn't seen her in about 20 years. She came in the office one day, and she wanted some diet pills. I said, what, God, Janice, what for? And she said, well, I, you know, we're having this 25th wedding anniversary, and all the family's coming, and I want, I want to take off this little weight and look good. You know, I said, God, you look great. You haven't changed about that much from high school. And I mean, why don't you just do some aerobics and this, that, and the other thing, cut down on your stuff and calories, and you'll be just fine. And... Uh, <laughs> she came back and t- told me the story later. But then, you know, I thought right then and there, I remember Janice, she was a good-looking chick in high school. She never even, she was, you know, a beauty queen type of category, and uh, she never made even cheerleader because she had a lousy, poor self-esteem, self-image, no self-worth type thing. And so I immediately bonded with her anyway. She went home that night, and uh, and I told her, I said, you go home tonight, and you disrobe, and you stand there in front of the mirror, start naked, and you just look at yourself, and you'll see you haven't changed that much in 20 years, and you just tell yourself, I'll get looking, you know, a little, whatever that was, psychotherapy. And so she did that night, and there she is in front of the mirror doing her thing, you know, start naked, and then walks her husband and says, what in the Lord are you doing? She says, you know what Lynn Hankins told me? He says, you know, that kid was smart when he was in, in, in high school. He says, he's even smarter now. He says, he told me, he says, I have got the body of a 20-year-old. And he took a look at her and said, did he say anything about your 40-year-old ass? <laughs> and she looked up from him and says, no, as a matter of fact, your name never even came up in the conversation. <laughs> but uh, she was very... Why I really was concerned. My wife and I had a, ser- a series of uh, big fights. The first one was about joining the country club. I wanted to do that because that was the end thing to be, and I could fit in again. Besides, they had bars at the country club. They had bars in every room, and uh, uh, she won that fight. We didn't join the country club, but I can continue to fall uphill. And... Uh, uh, now I was being groomed to be the youngest chief of staff. He spent two years as secretary, two years as, as uh, vice president, and then, and then uh, two years as chief of staff. And I was the youngest one they were ever going to have, and I'd already completed my second year's training. I got elected to a bank board. There were two other docs in town uh, that uh, on a bank board, but I was the youngest one. They had a very studi club there called the Union League Club. Man, I mean, you had, had the right color blood to get in that place. Uh, average age was about 77. And they elected me to that, and boy, I was flying just uh, higher than a kite, and everything was going great. I think often of that, uh, and I, but I was doing a lot of drinking at home. I had tremendous drinking. I don't know about at home, man. I'd get home. I wouldn't walk in that door, and I'd have that rum bottle in my hand, and uh, it, it was uh, a couple stiff ones real quick, get a little equilibrium. And I, often, I know, I, you know, I'm not a real subscriber to this denial thing. I, I know that my drinking was abnormal way before I admitted that I was alcoholic. Uh, and I would, I would think to myself from time to time, I'd talk about drinking alcoholically. That's different from being alcoholic. Very different, very different. But I always wondered, you know, what was the real reason why I drank? And I never told myself the real reason. And every alcoholic I've ever worked with since has never told me the real reason. Uh, it's like guys never tell me the real reason why they read Playboy either. 
you know, I mean, oh, Doc, fantastic articles in there. I mean, unreal, uh, uh, dynamic young writers, and uh, the photography is just the beautiful stuff. Except going back to that, that club where the uh, I joined, average age was 77. They had a big library there. It was a luncheon club, and they had everything in this library, but the guys only read two things, Wall Street Journal and Playboy. And uh, most of them read Playboy. And one day, this is the only guy who told me the real reason why I read Playboy. One day, my dad's friend, Pat, he was 82, he was reading Playboy. And I went over to him and I said, Pat, I said, you mind telling me? I said, why you read that thing? He says, Doc, you really want to know? I said, yeah, I really want to know. He says, Doc, he says, I read Playboy for the same reason I read National Geographic. I said, really? Why is that? He says, because I get to see color pictures of places I ain't never going to get to visit. <laughs> anyway, about this time, a fellow came into my life by the name of Jim W. Jim W. was the chairman of the Illinois State Medical Society Panel for Impaired Physicians. There was a notice on the bulletin board of the local hospital that he was coming out to do this breakfast meeting on impaired physicians. And I said, I remember saying to myself, what a dumb topic. I mean, to waste our time with something stupid like that. And I for sure was not going to go to that conference at 8 o'clock in the morning. As fate or the higher power would have it, I had a surgical emergency that morning. It was a kidney stone. And I was in there about 4 o'clock in the morning and done with the case and all wrapped up. And it was time for breakfast. And I said, well, I will go down to this dumb thing because I get some free breakfast and get that out of the way. And this Jim W. was up there extolling all about this uh, impaired physician panel in Illinois and all these docs that were alcoholic and addict and put in the treatment. I'm sitting way in the back row, right? Okay. I don't know what he said that morning, but it had some kind of impact because I went up to him afterwards. I introduced myself to him. And I said, he happened to have, and he had a whole table full of literature, which I didn't want to go over and pick up uh, for fear somebody might make the connection, you know, oh, yeah, finally he's getting a message. Uh, but Jim gave me his card or a little thing or whatever, a tablet or whatever, and I took that home and I put it in my nightstand, interestingly enough. And then things started to deteriorate. And first, my tolerance went down. I came home one night, it couldn't have been more than 6 o'clock at night, and I had a couple stiff ones. I don't care how stiff they were, I know I only had two. It wasn't more than 7 o'clock. I got a phone call from one of the general surgeons. He says, I'm up here, I got this guy, I'm taking the OR, he's got blood in his urine, it's a gunshot wound, probably hit his kidney, come on up and help me. I said, I'll be right up. And I started up the stairs to brush my teeth or do something, and I fell up the stairs. At 7 o'clock at night. I got it, came to the realization, I said, you can't go up there and do surgery, you jerk, you're drunk. And, oh, fear, unreal, I couldn't believe it. And I called my partner and told him some story about going into O'Hare Airport to meet my long-lost friend from Vietnam, whatever I told him, I don't remember. And, and, and thank God he was in town, and he went up and did the surgery for me. Well, I, 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 I felt terrible. I mean, I, God, I said, I, this, hey, this is affecting your, what's going on here? You better get your act together. And then the physical stuff started, uh, you know, it didn't stop my drinking, but, you know, I got to figure some way to get around this. And then the physical stuff started coming in. I used to get this, again, through the retrospectoscope, terrible esophagitis, which, you know, I would misdiagnose as angina. Uh, and I recall laying in bed after one of those three-day weekends having this god-awful chest pain, being afraid of going up to the emergency room. What if they took a blood exam, uh, exam? What if they tested alcohol? What if they smelled it on my breath? What if they poked my liver and found it out? And, I, and God, I'm, I'm, 
I think I'm having a heart attack, and I know full well on the left side of my brain, you know, you, if you're having a heart attack, you jerk it up there, because that's when the copy you die in the first 30 minutes. And uh, the right side saying, no, you don't, it'll be okay, for, you know, do something. I mean, it was terrible. Not only was I making the wrong diagnosis, I was making the wrong treatment. And then the mental stuff started. Oh, the terrible, terrible, overwhelming fear. The telephone. Oh, the rang. Oh, jeez. And and then I, you know, I pray for the days off. And then my partner called me at the last minute. and said, "Can you cover today?" And because uh, I so and so called me, I got to go and play a round of golf. And I'd already had three beers. And I said, "Oh, jeez." And and I would say, here I was falling uphill, three thousand square foot home, three acre estate, three cars in the garage, uh, two of them Cadillacs. And the mental stuff started, the severe depression. And I'd wake, I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up at four o'clock in the morning. I look out in this estate and I think, I think of that song that Peggy Lee sang, you know, is that all there is? Because it looked great on the outside, but boy, on the inside it was terrible. And I'd sit there and I, I and I'd make mounds and mounds of instructions for my wife because I was planning my own suicide. Where to send the kids to college, what to do with this, what to do with that. You should have read the obituary I wrote for myself, which was the first thing. Okay, on top of the of the instructions, you know, oh, how they will miss me. Look at them crying as they're going by my casket. Oh, Jesus, what a loss to mankind. And oh, jeez, it was terrible. And I was on the verge of suicide. And I, uh, I had this little kid who had a Wilms tumor I'd removed a couple years ago. And every three months he'd come for his chemotherapy. And I'd give him some actinomycin, something else. And uh, he was seven. And uh, he'd come every three months. For five days, he'd come in the emergency room, and I'd inject him after we get the platelet count, the white count back. And Boy, we had this down. I mean, he was coming in, and, and we'd practice, you know, with a little needle and a little water, you know, and I'd stick it in, and I'd have the nurse drop a pan and open up the curtain and everything. And that kid knew he wouldn't move that arm because he'd going to get burned, and no way was that going to happen. Last morning, last morning of two years of doing this every three months for five days, the last injection... And I took him in a present. I mean, this kid was a, a charger. He, he was a real trooper. And he knew I was bringing him a present. And that morning, I was in such miserable shape. I remember stopping by the surgeon's dressing room. And when nobody was looking, grabbing a handful of sugar cubes to go into the little potty there and down those sugar cubes because I knew this, this shaking was obviously due to hypoglycemia. And uh, I went off to the emergency room to inject this kid. And we were, uh, we were about done with the injection, but there was still a little left. And I was holding the needle, and the nurse was injecting the stuff. And another nurse came by, and she opened the curtain, and he moved, and I didn't move fast enough. And... Uh, some of the stuff extravasated, and he got a chemical burn. And uh, it wasn't a big burn. Uh, might as well have been his whole arm, as far as I was concerned. I, I can't. He never cried. He never. He got tears in his eyes. And he got up, and he said to me, "Thank you for saving my life." And I gave him his present. And I, I don't ever recall ever having felt so terrible in all my life as I did that minute when he said that. 
Now I got to go find this kid. He's 16 now. And I got to tell him thank you for saving my life. Because I walked out of that emergency room. I don't even remember signing out. I don't remember anything but getting in my big Cadillac and driving up by the Fox River and trying to decide whether to go in the river or down the freeway or whatever. And somehow or another, I got back home. And I called Jim W. from two years ago. That card was still in the nightstand. And I told him about my friend, who I thought had some problem. (laughs) And he said, well, come into the Beverly Country Club tomorrow and we'll have lunch and talk about your friend. And, of course, he probably took one look at me and knew who my friend was. That was a standing joke we had uh, with urologists. You know, every so often we get a little, uh, excuse me now, ladies, we get a little uh, uh, curbside consult uh, from someone and say, listen, Doc, I got this friend who's got this particular sore on his you-know-where. And uh, as urologists, we would always say, why don't you take out your friend and let me look at it? And uh, he, uh, he probably took one look at me and said, good Lord, in heaven above, that's uh, great. And... Uh, Anyway, he took me to my first AA meeting in Chicago, and it was a hot uh, May night, and it was I was sweating, and I was in withdrawal, and the hardest words I think I ever had to say in my mind that I am an alcoholic, because I didn't want to be one. I didn't know what one was. I just knew I didn't want to be one, and I didn't want to look at anybody. And this guy across the table, about 40 guys in the room, and he kept looking at me all night. I didn't want to have eye contact with him. He came up to me after the meeting. He said he had now gained weight. He had a beard. I didn't recognize him. He was one of my old buddies from Sweeney's in South Bend. He said, Lynn, what the hell took you so long? <laughs> and uh, then I had to, I, I couldn't go in Chicago all the time because that, that meeting was on a Thursday night. It was, I couldn't change day. I said, Jim says, you'll have to go to this local meeting out in Batavia, Illinois. My God, that was seven miles from Aurora. Everybody would know me. He was smart enough to know to hook me up with this doctor from Elgin who would meet me here and take me to this meeting, which he did. And he came for two, and we went down there, and I saw an old buddy of my dad's. I used to pour in the car 20 years ago from the country club when they were drinking. And I was scared to death, and uh, you know. But I tell you something: at both of those meetings, which were back to back, those people understood. For the first time in my life, I realized that there, that there was some hope. That whatever I had could be fixed. That I didn't have to have all this misery. And they understood. And they weren't judgmental. And everybody wanted to help. And whatever they had, I wanted. I didn't know what it was. Uh, and life got better. Uh, even some amusing things happened. Uh, I got a letter from the local liquor store about three months after I'd stopped drinking. and said, uh, dear doctor, we're, we're sorry if we've offended you some way, but uh, uh, could we, we'd like your business back. And I thought all this time how clever I was, you know, disguising the amount of my drinking. And then I got to go to uh, professional AA, and that was exciting because uh, uh, it was great for me because I realized that wasn't the only doctor who had shortchanged uh, his patients, and I did a lot of that shortchanging. And uh, then I finally got to uh, IDAA four years or five years ago, 1982, in Chicago. But the meeting the following year was the critical one for me in, in Vancouver. Uh, somehow or another, I got into the, uh, the Alcathon at night on the fifth step. And I hate to tell you this, but I'd been sober five years. I was dry, rather, not sober. And I had not taken the fourth or fifth step. Uh, I didn't like those slogans. I thought they should have read, let go, <coughs> let go and let Lynn. Um, and I, and I, didn't, I did not have uh, a sponsor. Uh, of course, it was kind of redundant. Why would you need a sponsor if you weren't working the steps? And, boy, I was having a lot of pain, and I went in there, and Ted C. was running a meeting, and they told me about a fifth step. And that Sunday, when Paul O. talked, he talked about two kinds of people in the world, drinkers and non-drinkers and drinkers. And he said, of the, of the drinkers, there's two kinds. There's non-alcoholics and there's alcoholics. And he said, of the alcoholics, there's two kinds. There's the non-recovering and the recovering. And apparently what makes the difference is the fourth and the fifth step. 
And that's all I heard that whole Vancouver meeting and went home thereafter and I did the fourth and fifth step and I got not just one sponsor, I got two. I got a uh, doctor sponsor and I got an iron worker sponsor and the doctor sponsor tells me I got a fecal impaction and the iron worker sponsor tells me it in more pungent terms. Uh, <laughs> and things are getting a little better. And the family's getting a little better. Uh, my wife's got her black belt in Al-Anon now and uh, the... Uh, I got two uh, older college kids in ACA, and I got uh, the two here helping lead the Alateen meeting last night, and a little seven-year-old who, uh, who's in her uh, Alatot meeting, and uh, I went over to the Alanon meeting last night, and boy, I tell you, don't, don't believe that stuff, because they, they uh, copy what we do, you know, they give it, uh, you know, what it was like and what happened, what it's like. Now, that's, it can't really be like that, because every so often I come home, and they're all gathered, the family in the kitchen, and I know they're having to meet, and then the tone changes, and they don't talk. And I know they have courses uh, in Al-Anon. They have, uh, you know, Detachment 101 and uh, <laughs> Refocusing Anger 202 and uh, 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 Counter Manipulation and uh, Defusing Paranoia and all those kinds of things. And, uh, and uh, they let me know about it on a regular basis. I'm sure one of these nights we'll all be sitting around the table and my wife... Uh, uh, we'll say something like, you know, we've observed some huge emotional displacements and significant uh, cognitive reorganization. And uh, the uh, the older college kids will say, yes, yes, we've noticed that too, Mom, that uh, the dad's old ideas and attitudes, uh, which used to be his guiding forces, have now been suddenly cast aside. And the teenagers will say, yeah, now that dad has adopted a new set of uh, concepts and motivations which have begun to dominate him. And then uh, probably the seven-year-old will say, Dad, what that all boils down to is... Uh, we've observed a, a true metanoia. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, okay? So I'm still going to meetings and still trying to get a little better. And I'm very grateful for AA. I got a trek back through AA's history and I recommend it highly to you. I stopped uh, in Akron for a day and, and went from, uh, from uh, the Mayflower Hotel to Dr. Bob's grave and everything in between. I got a little presentation uh, entitled uh, The First Impaired Physician. Uh, my iron worker sponsor suggested I title it the first impaired by the worst impaired. And uh, it's, uh, it's really kind of exciting, and I'm very grateful for, uh, for IDAA. Uh, I love AA, and I love IDAA. You've saved my life and uh, given it a quality I never knew. I'm getting a little glimpse of that thing called serenity. Uh, there is, has been a little, little change in my perspective. My relationship with God is real different. It used to be, you know, like the coming from, uh, well, you know, if God wanted a uh, man to fly, he'd give him a set of wings. And if God wanted man to be in the moon, he'd put him there. And if God wanted uh, alcoholics to be sober, he'd have made him that way. Uh, I changed a little bit anyway, and I, I think now that if, if uh, God wanted man to fly, he'd give him an Orville and a Wilbur Wright, and he did. And if God wanted man on the moon, he'd give him a Neil Armstrong and a Werner Von Braun, and he did. And if God wanted alcoholics to be sober, he'd have given them AA and the 12 steps, and he did. And I love you. Thank you very much.